Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor in play betting. Watch the action, predict the action, and make your best bet with the latest odds on over 1,000 daily events. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. This episode is also sponsored by Noon. Is your water working as hard as you? Noon Sport makes your water work harder. It's hydration you can feel. It's what plants crave. Anytime you sweat, you lose vital electrolytes and minerals that your body needs in order to keep moving and recover efficiently. Noon Sport is optimized for hydration and replenishment before, during, and after a workout. You just drop one of those little fizzy tablets into your water bottle to supplement your hydration anytime, anywhere. It's super convenient. It doesn't melt in your hand or any of that. It only has one gram of sugar and clean ingredients that are certified non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. Noon is also available in 13 delicious flavors, including fan favorite Cherry Limeade, which has an extra boost of caffeine in case you need a little bit of motivation to get your sweat on. To get the hydration you need to hit your goals, visit NoonLife.com. That's N-U-U-N-L-I-F-E.com for 20% off your first order. Welcome to episode 10 of VAR at the Bar. My name is Chris, and who am I with today? I'm Dan. I'm Dan. Hello both, how are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, keep well, thanks. Good, good. I can safely say we are now pod official. We've reached 10 podcasts, and also we've now got intro music, which has taken a while, but we had to pick the right one, didn't we? That is actually by a guy called Joseph McDade, uh, and the track's called BarkBot2000, if you want, anyone wanted to know that. Yeah, so thank you very much for that. Yeah, yeah thanks. Right, then I guess you guys want to know what we've got, got in store for today's episode, then. Yep, lay it on, Chris. Okay, so we're starting with the good, bad, obscure at the beginning. I thought we'd mix things up a bit. Then we'll follow that with um, a bit of War Not Watch, with my assistant, Dan, who's done it this week. And then we'll, we've got then a nice, juicy top 10 rivalries slash derbies of football history. And then we'll finish that one off with, with a nice, uh, juicy quiz at the end. Sounds good, Chris. Okay. So we'll start with, like I say, good, the bad, and the obscure. Now, does anybody know this guy? Jill's the build. Yes. Yeah. This guy's had an interesting career. So he started it at um, 
Adrak Alsat. He's there between 1992 to 1995. He won Belgium Young Player of the Year in 1994 uh, to 95 season, scoring 21 goals in 33 games. From that, he signed to Belgium Giants Anderlecht in 1995, and he scored quite a good ratio of 22 goals in uh, 46 Belgium First Division matches. But before he was um, a professional footballer, he actually received a suspended two-year sentence in 1992 for headbutting two Boy Scout leaders. I don't know what led to it, but that, that's the sort of compelling part here. Um, yeah, tweet in if you know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, please, if you do. I'll give you the socials in a minute. In September of '96, he um, headbutted one nurse and punched another when he was denied access to a hospital room to visit his ill dad. Later on that year, in a match between Anderlet and um, Alzat, he punched um, the defender, Chris Potra, in the face, breaking his nose and injuring his eye. Funny enough, he was then quickly shipped off um, to PSV uh, for about £3 million. He actually scored 24 goals in 49 matches, helped them to win the title at the end of the 96-97 season. Then they moved to Sheffield Wednesday. He had a great first season there, scoring 10 league goals, but he didn't stop, unfortunately, um, Sheffield Wednesday getting relegated. So he was shipped off to um, Villa. He only made four appearances during that loan, loan spell. Following that, he... Joined Anderlecht again in 2001, then went on to another Belgian club called uh, Lierza, then went to Willsbrook Moorhof. He's, he's a campaigner for uh, cat and dog, dog fur, so anything to do with dog rights, he does, he's totally against any, uh, he's against all of that. And he was fined a match. Um, because he failed to turn up to the match because he was mourning a death of one of his dogs. That's not the end of it. <laughs> there is more. Right, so, during his time at Sheffield Wednesday, there was a newspaper article from the uh, News of the World, I think it was, that they having had proof that he smuggled two Doberman dogs past customs illegally without putting them into quarantine. He said, um, quarantine laws are shit because they affect the dog's health. It's not a good thing. Then, to finish off uh, my little trick, he um, got into a bit of bother after Sheffield Wednesday got uh, relegated. Um, at that time, the manager was Paul Jewell. He demanded a move back to the Premier League. So Paul Jewell fixed him up with the three-month loan at Villa. Um, he said, but when I called him, he said, who will look after the dogs? And then Paul Jewell said, give us a set of keys and I'll feed the bloody dogs. <laughs> and then he said at the end, that's the sort of guy I was up against. A quick rendition of his whole career of Jewels to Build. Wow. Which I, what made you pick him out of a hat? Pure randomness, mate, from another <laughs> bit of digging I did. And then I saw his, um, his little bit of a colourful career and I thought, well, oh, that's perfect for the good, bad and the obscure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think obscure is probably an understatement for that one, isn't it? 
Right then, the next segment we've got is Warnock Watch by Dan this week. So what have you got for us? Right, I'll give you a week off, Chris. I've uh, been looking into some stuff for you. Thank you. uh, I found a few quotes from his uh, first press conference, actually, when he took the job full-time at Middlesbrough. Uh, One of them was where he was asked, uh, where does his desire to keep going come from? And he said, I don't know if I'm honest. I was going to say it's all the booing I get, but there's not actually much of that around at the minute. Uh, Quite candid. And he was then asked about what to expect. And he said, uh, as you saw with the FA Cup final, it's a strange situation at the moment. You might have all the modern technology. We might have computers telling us everything. But when you get two hamstrings, a dislocated shoulder in 90 minutes, there's something wrong somewhere. We've never been almost 12 months playing in a season. And I do worry about that. Not a funny one, that, but I think he's right to be concerned going into the new season. Uses his experience, doesn't he? Exactly. Warnock's still got it. He still has, mate. That's why the bookies are still uh, putting Middlesbrough up to be up there for promotion next year, or this year, whatever you want to call it. Class it has. <laughs> anyone's going to get him up, it's going to be Warnock. Well, it's funny you talk about that, because he was then asked about um, Borough's attacking record, and he said, Quite frankly, to be the lowest goal scorers in the division is a disgrace. <laughs> so I'm quite surprised by those odds. <laughs> yeah, true. He's got his work cut out from uh, <laughs> improving that strike force with no money to spend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on expectations for next season, he said, I don't set any targets. If we got halfway, I think it would be a good season. But I don't want to be halfway. I wouldn't be in the job if I wanted halfway. I'd be fishing and feeding the ducks if I wanted to be halfway. <laughs> oh, he's great. Love him. <laughs> I do actually really like him as manager. I think he's, he's such a character. <laughs> and this was after the Celtic player, uh, Bolly Bolingoli, admitted playing the match against Kilmarnock after recently returning from Spain. Good job I didn't get him. <laughs> Apparently... Uh, Neil Warnock tried to sign him just the week before. <laughs> At least he's honest. <laughs> so yeah, we'll have. Uh, I think between us, we'll find some more on Warnock Watch next week. Got to yeah, I'm happy. Exactly. Apparently, it's a personal favourite with a few people, so we've got to keep them up, haven't we? Keep them all happy. Brilliant. But also, if people have got their own uh, quotes from Warnock, feel free to share them. We'll read them out on the podcast. You can get us on Facebook at VAR at the Bar. Email is at VAR at the bar 2020 and our Twitter handle is VAR at the bar one. So do get in touch with those. We have anything at all, any of their own lists that we do on any episode, anything at all. I have been sending a few tweets out and a lot of people have gone against the grain with the best Premier League keeper. A lot of people said Peter Schmeichel, no doubt. Didn't even consider catch, which I was quite surprised about. Didn't one of us put Schmeichel at number one? I think it might have been your good self, Dan, actually. Don't try and hide that. Me, me and Anne had good arguments about catch. <laughs> <laughs> and I still stick to them now. <laughs> Goal in a vital game. 
So, like I said before, this is the one that's been voted um, on Twitter for us to do, which I think is probably one of the hardest ones we've we've done. Easily the hardest. It, it was very hard. I found that I couldn't find anything to to rank them on. Every no. derby's different. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Trying to find something that made the other one bigger than the, the previous yeah. one, and yeah, I, like I said to you, mine's just a, a joint top one, number one. I've just, no. got, I've just got to pick the best 10 and just going to go with it. No, that, that's fine. I mean, that's how I found it as well. I mean, I found some was found some literature about things and you just try to go with the ones with the best beef, isn't it? The juiciest stories, really. I mean, some of them could just start from nothingness, really. I mean, what about you, Dan? How did you find it? Yeah, this, this is the hardest list we've done, in my opinion. There's just so much to read into it. There's so many different reasons as to why a match would mean more to someone. But then weighing that up against other rivalries, it's so tough. Now, it sounds like we're going to have a bit of a mixed bag, a dolly mixture of um, yeah. different rivalries going around. But like with everything, there's no right answer. So if anyone wants to, again, email them their, their top 10 rivalries, then please do so. Yeah, so we'll start with Dan, if that's okay, if you're number 10. Get the ball rolling. Yeah, okay, so number 10. I've actually gone for one that I mentioned on the the last podcast. It's a rivalry in Paraguay between Olympia and Cerro Porteño. Now, Olympia are regarded as a club with the higher classes. That's where their supporter base is. And Cerro Porteño are more for the, the working men's football team. Sarah Patenio have a strategy of bringing young players from the countryside to train with them, often invite the families too, and they're provided for. It's a real family atmosphere at a working man's level, and they give something back to the community. That's the way they operate. Uh, their fans are quite passionate, and they're known as El Cyclone, <laughs> the cyclone. <laughs> Imagine what it's like when they arrive in town. Olympia have won 38 domestic league titles, and Patenio have won 27. So Olympia are edging it, but if you think count up all those titles between them, they're pretty dominant in Paraguay. And uh, what really caught my imagination was reading an article on this where a reporter went to this game, and what he described was uh, atmosphere in the streets with drums thumping, firecrackers exploding, trumpets, whistles, chants. Uh, shops were shutting as the crowds walked by, pulling down the, the shutters in anticipation of uh, a violent onslaught. Uh, before anything actually kicked off, what he witnessed was this uh, old bus that uh, came out of nowhere at the stadium and 40 armed officers came out, army troops with machine guns lurking. It was just absolute chaos, really. It's just the amount of passion that the locals pour into that game uh, with the biggest two teams in Paraguay. It's just a really heated derby. No, I think that's a, a good start, starting block there, Dan. You can't beat the South Americans, can you? For their passion. passion yeah, exactly. A little bit of passion. You beat, you can't beat that. Right, then I'll go next, just to mix things up a little bit. I mean, to be honest, my first one's England-Scotland. First ever international was to be played between those two teams in 1872. Before that... They did have a couple of friendlies. However, in the early days, uh, both teams were picked from players from the London area. So it wasn't really England versus Scotland. (laughs) It was from the Queen's Park area. So it's quite entertaining, I guess. It was 
more like a load of mates playing. Um, the first, I'd say, the first match was played um, on St Andrew's Day, 1872, in Hamilton Crescent. That's in Partick. Uh, admission to the ground was a, a shilling, but ladies were admitted free, which I thought was quite surprising back in those days. Uh, there's around about 2,500 supporters back then, and uh, the English players came onto the pitch smoking pipes. Fancy if something like that happened now, you could just see Sterling with a bit of a, a fag in his mouth or something before that. But there actually were reports that Scotland were playing more of a tikka style at the time. Is that what they called it? <laughs> well, I would love to know what they were calling it back in those days, but I don't think it was that. I found that, that was quite amusing. I can't, couldn't really see that, but that was quite good. They actually played every year um, except for the two World Wars until 1989. That was part of the Home Nation Games. As of June 2017, um, the record was England wins 48, Scotland 41, and uh, 25 draws from the 114 games. Obviously... The last one, I think, was two-all draw. I think Lee Griffiths scored something like a free kick. Um, Obviously, things have changed and moved on, but back in the day, I think it was a very heated rivalry with it being the oldest in football history. You could probably say now that England have probably got a few more bigger rivalries, but I think with its history, there's always a little bit more needle, isn't there? But we don't want to lose to Scotland, do you? That's it, exactly. The old enemy, as they're called, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Right, Johan, what's your number 10? Um, so I, I, I chose this one because it's a little bit different. I've gone for Brazil versus Uruguay. Ooh, okay. El Clasico del Rio Negro, it's called. Wow. Um, <laughs> I chose this one because it's more of a psychological rivalry in that like, there's always been a tense atmosphere between them. Uh, ever since a famous encounter in 1950 World Cup final, when uh, Uruguay, who were massive underdogs then, played Brazil on Brazil's home soil, and they actually Uruguay won, and it's considered one of Brazil's most embarrassing defeats ever on home soil. That was until 2014 when uh, Germany rocked up. Um, yeah. It was so traumatising that the Brazilian media didn't even report on it, and some fans who went decided to commit suicide. And um, year, years after, Uruguay used to love to taunt the Brazil fans, and, and Brazil fans were always fearful the fact that the Phantom of Fifty would resurface. So it's like a kind of a, a ghost rivalry. Yeah. Wow, it's a rivalry of the fear of losing, isn't it? Yeah, and they don't want a repeat of that game. Uh, I just thought it was different than Brazil. No, no, that's a good one. I like that. Go on, then, Dan. Whack us with your number nine. Right, number nine, I've gone for Fenerbahce versus Galatasaray, the Intercontinental Ooh. Derby. That is my number one. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go for it then, Dan. Okay. So uh, Fenerbahce, they're on the Asian side of Istanbul. Galatasaray represent the European side of Istanbul. Uh, Galatasaray are considered the... Uh, Classic representative of high society, as Fenerbahce traditionally were the people's club and the blue-collar workers. Uh, fan base 
is a pretty even split with Galatasaray having about 35% of Turkish fans, Fenerbahce 34%. But in total, that's 69% of Turkish fans supporting these two teams. So it gives you an idea of how much Turkey comes to a standstill when these two teams meet. The highest attendance recorded is 71,334 back in 2003. Uh, But the rivalry itself, it actually dates back to 1934, where um, a friendly between the two teams had a a lot of aggressive tackles and fights between players escalated into the stands and riots in the streets. And eventually the match was abandoned. Hooliganism and violence has been common throughout the rivalry. I've got down wins for Galatasaray, 124, 146 for Fenerbahce. So they've got the best of it so far. Mm. Anything to add there, Anne? Uh, yeah, only that one of the other famous instances was obviously the Zunes uh, <laughs> and the flag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where uh, the Fenerbahce vice president called him a cripple because he had heart mm-hmm. surgery. And soon this raced onto the pitch at full time, plonked a flag down the centre circle, then promptly shat himself because he saw the Fenerbahce fans clambering the uh, <laughs> clambering down the stadium to try and get to him. Uh, ran off. It's just, just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Who was it that scored the goals for Fenerbahce in both of those legs? Oh God, Dean Saunders. Well done, man. Well done, that man. Yeah, I was I was quite interested. I totally forgot he had a bit of a stint in Turkey. Amazing, he ends up over there. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole list of them, isn't there? You had Drogba there and Nuls. Van Percy. Yeah, but another interesting fact was that obviously, Dan, you're absolutely correct with how it all escalated. But they actually had a they were playing in quite quite friendly terms from 1909. So this one match just suddenly escalated into absolute madness. It is an epic rivalry, that's for sure. It is, definitely. And it doesn't help probably with a manager snatching a flag from his um, one of his players and charging, dodging, literally missiles being thrown at him <laughs> of coins and whatever to then plant, plant a flag in the middle of the circle. It's just You couldn't write it though, could you? You couldn't at all. But then it's Graham Tunis, so, you know, he does what he wants. Right then, um, my number nine I've got is uh, Bahia versus Victoria. Um, that is Brazilian teams. It's actually rated as the third sort of most contested game, mainly because it's not as as well known as the other, other two, the big two. It's in the northwest of Brazil. And funny enough, it's called the Barvi. Simple enough. Um, it's around the Salvador area. To be fair, the rivalry didn't develop till the 1950s. But here at that time, were controlling that, that, that division on that, that sort of uh, individual section. Um, and that Victoria, uh, Victoria at that time um, decided to become professional. They um, allowed a lot of poor, poor black players uh, to come in before they, their main sport was rowing. And then with, with regards to that, there's a quite a high percentage on that area of African slaves and various traditions influenced by the West African religions from these slaves was that there was talk of witchcraft being used before these games. 
They actually called it uh, Macumba at the time. Um, just a little little story to tell you. Uh, it sort of ramped up a little bit in the mid nineties. That um, a Victoria midfielder called Preto provoked um, a Bahir player called uh, Pahari by hinting that he slept with his wife. It worked. Bahari got sent off for it during that game. Bahari then moaned to the media and said about what was said beforehand. But then later on, like a few months later, he actually broke into Preto's apartment um, after another derby game, pointing a gun at his head and made him promise that the adultery never happened, which obviously promptly did. But yeah, so it sort of ranked up a little bit with, with these sorts of feelings. And that's only sort of a regional rivalry of the Northwest territories. So I'll put that as number nine just for that one story alone. I just thought it's quite interesting how that and witchcraft <laughs> can affect A coach said the best result for, for both teams whenever that happened, whenever they play each other, is a draw because of all the witchcraft and, and violence after this. Uh, yeah, so it's a good, good little star. Uh, number nine for you, Anne. What have you got for us? Okay, so I've come for a, um, you know, I like to be a bit different. So I've gone for a German rivalry. I decided not to do some of the bigger ones. I've gone St. Pauli versus Hansa Rostock. Oh, I've gone St. Pauli uh, Hamburg. Oh, okay. That's so interesting. This this one is is this one is apparently one of the most hateful rivalries in in the entire country. Um, they're like hundreds of miles away from each other. They're on different <laughs> sides of Germany. One's east, one's west. So St. Pauli are obviously based in Hamburg, and they're quite uh, left thinking and are very strong on uh, anti racism, fascism, homophobia. Uh, Rostock, which is a pretty little town in East Germany, they. Um, they're quite different. They're more far right and they've got neo-Nazi residents due to a lot of immigrants that uh, fled there after the Berlin Wall came down. Anyway, 1992 saw a lot of uh, xenophobic riots and it was the same time that St. Pauli came to visit. Needless to say, it didn't go down very well. There was lots of flares flown, there was lots of violence. Um, Rostock fans have since been known to throw bananas at the St. Pauli black players. Flares have been fired into the away stand. And it apparently is one of the most policed games in the world. Wow. Wow. That's why I put that one in. I know it's a little bit different, but... No. No, it's perfectly valid, that is. The political argument behind it. It's crazy. St. Paul is such a weird club. It's like like a people's club. Yeah, it's owned by the people. They actually own it. I was reading about them, and they're actually... They're getting a bit more corporate now, and the fans don't like it. No, no. Yeah, sellouts. There is apparently a strip club in the stadium that the ladies strip every time the goal scored. (laughs) Is that our next trip? (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. It'd be a a dual nil-nil draw or something, I guess. I'm not going to that derby, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right then, uh, Dan, what have you got for us uh, for number eight? Number eight, I've gone for Derby della Capitale. Roma versus Lazio. I've got it at uh, seven. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll make a start and then you guys can uh, add to it. That's all right? Yeah. 
So um, going back to its origins, it was the intention of fascist dictator Benito Mussolini to create a unified Roman club to challenge the dominance of the northern clubs in Milan and Juventus. Uh, But one team that wasn't agreed to the merger was Lazio. So you ended up with two teams in Rome and they had a rivalry uh, which was viewed as the battle to be the team that represents the rest of Italy. And it has uh, lots of bragging rights attached to the match now. Quite often, top half of the table, very close together. Uh, the records are also closely matched, with uh, Lazio winning 17 major honours against Roma 16. Uh, both teams have sets of ultras, uh, hardcore fans. Uh, Lazio's, again, with that um, fascist background dating back to its origins, Lazio ultras, unfortunately, they use lots of swash stickers and fascist symbols on their banners and they've displayed racist behaviours towards a lot of the Roma black players. They've also been known to hurl a a 50-metre banner around the the stadium that said, Auschwitz is your town, the ovens are your houses, which is pretty extreme to say the least. Uh, In 2017, uh, Lazio fans left anti-Semitic stickers of Anne Frank on Roma jerseys and on Walter's graffiti at the Stadio Olimpico. And uh, in 2017, again, when Lazio beat Roma 3-1, four days later, Lazio Ultras hung dummies with Roma jerseys from pedestrian walkways and signs reading, a warning without offence, sleep with the lights on. So it's a pretty extreme rivalry and a lot of underlying hatred involved as well. It's mad because I think... um... They always say, don't they, the cafes don't open because you have people on mopeds that just sort of stab people on the bottoms and they go past. So obviously that's the most painful area. So if you've got like a, a Lazio share and someone comes by on a moped who's Roma, you probably get a high probability of that happening. It's just mad. I mean, I've got a couple of um, things myself actually to do with what players have done on the pitch mainly Paolo Di Cagno, which probably doesn't surprise you. <laughs> yeah, he he gave the Roman salute adopted by fascists after scoring a goal against Roma. I mean, that, that doesn't help situations, does it, really? <laughs> but obviously, he's, he's very political and he's very passionate about it. So I guess, fair enough, he's got his opinion. But it is a pretty fanatical... Rivalry, isn't it, to say the least? Yeah, it's a really scary culture there that, quite frankly, I'd want to be quite distant from. But yeah, it's a heated derby, and it's actually two very good football teams at the centre of it. Yeah. Anything to add there, Alan? Uh, no, I was going to say that they've not been massively successful in terms of trophies. All they care about is who finishes higher than the other one. Yeah, That's, that's their goal at the start of the season. Probably not like, they probably do want to win the league, but... As long as they finish above the other one, they're happy. If you ever hear about Gaza's time at Lazio, for example, he scored a winner in injury time, I think in his first ever own derby. And he's an absolute legend for just doing that. And he didn't have to probably do anything else really at Lazio, but he did that one thing. And now he's an absolute god there. He's, and it just shows how much um, animosity there is, isn't it, between the two teams. All right, so that was your number number eight. Yeah. Am I right? Dan, you, you surprise me every time we do a list. I just, 
<laughs> I mean, you've taken away two of my top four, so I just hope that the rest of them are. I think he does it on purpose now. My number eight is Hamburg St. Pauli. Basically, they're obviously just neighbouring areas. And like, like Ant, St. Pauli, it's not necessarily sort of about the football. It's about how the clubs are run. Like Ant said, St. Pauli are very much run by the people. And they call Hamburg sellouts, soulless. They're having star signings, big sponsorship deals. And they sort of think that that's wrong for modern football because they just want everything to be sort of familiarised. And, you know, it, they, they say it's not jealousy, but you don't know, you know, there's they've had signings in the past of Kevin Keegan, haven't they, Hamburg? Ruud van Nistelrooy's had a stint there. St. Paul, you have a lot more relaxed attitude, you know, all night drinking and partying, chilling out, making it a massive, every you know, Saturday being a massive day and night of it all. Um, like Ant said, massively left-wing politics as well. The main thing that I've sort of come across with this is um, that the 2001, St. Pauli don't really get to play Hamburg much because Hamburg were one of the top teams in Germany. I think they've been relegated now, so I think they've been playing them the last couple of seasons a few times. But uh, St. Pauli got promoted in 2011. They actually beat Hamburg that year for the first time since 1977. Obviously, that's because they probably haven't played them that much as well. Originally, the match was actually postponed due to bad weather. Hamburg changed the grass four days before. And Hamburg fans sort of put banners up at the beginning saying, um, saying, rebellious school and crossbones. And then next then Dot sold out, self-managed terrace sold out, trendy legend sold out, the person who has nothing left must dance on the pole. And there were concerns that St. Paul was selling out, like what Ant said about the commercialisation, and that's that was one thing to really rile the St. Paul fans. I have to say they ended up winning that game 1-0. Um, it was a, a header off a corner scored by Salonga. But what made it a little bit more poignant was that a couple of weeks before, the St. Pauli goalkeeper, uh, Benedict Piliqua, was attacked earlier on in the season after a game against Freiburg um, at a train station by Hamburg fans. Obviously noticed him and physically assaulted him. Wow. I don't think he'll ever, ever finish. Like I say, a lot of politics with how clubs are run. Like Ant said... St. Pauli are very left wing. Hamburg are a little bit more of a modern modern team. And it was it's always been a massive rivalry. Yeah. Good self then for number eight then, please, Ant. Uh I've gone Al Ali versus Zamalek, the Cairo Derby. Oh, okay. So they're obviously two of the best teams in Egypt and they they, they always have been. Um the meetings are generally violent. One in particular was 1971-72. That was so bad that the whole season got cancelled. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, the violence has died down a little bit over the years due to the uh, authoritarian regime of Egypt, but fights do still happen. Um, they have to get non-Egyptian referees to be flown in impartiality. One notable figure amongst it is uh, a player called Hossam Hassam. He, was, he became the Egyptian Figo slash Sol Campbell. 
because he was a record cap holder and he was a legend at Al Ali. Uh, but he turned 33 and the club offered him a one-year deal and they lent on his brother Ibrahim to retire. The, the pair of them decided to join rival Zamalek instead they thought they'd get a bad deal. And uh, Hossam led them to three titles in four years and then he later became manager of Zamalek in 2009. Promptly, he sparked a, a brawl between staff, fans and players in the, in the derby. He then walked over to the Al-Ali fans, laid down a Zamalek shirt and started praying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You could say it's quite a hostile derby. Uh, again, another one based on religion. <laughs> yeah. Religion no, and politics tends to be a theme, I think. And, yeah, and class. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Right then, Dan, what about your number seven? Right, number seven, I've gone for an international rivalry between El Salvador and Honduras. Oh, okay. So um, I'll give you some background on this. In uh, 1966, there were approximately 300,000 Salvadorans living in Honduras and made up about 20% of the population. And then Honduras brought in a land reform law so land occupied illegally by Salvadorian immigrants was to be redistributed to native-born Hondurans. As a result, thousands of Salvador laborers were expelled from Honduras. So that's the background that led to social tensions. Now, in 1969, the two teams met in a two-leg World Cup qualifier. So they played matches home and away in sort of like a group stage. And both matches were marred by scenes of violence, which uh, escalated. Now, 10 days after the, um, the second game, 11,700 Salvadorans were forced to flee Honduras due to scenes of oppression, rape and murder in Honduras. And the Honduran government did nothing to stop it. Uh, the reaction of the Salvadoran government to this was that they said it was disgraceful and it amounted to genocide. Now... As fate would have it, the two teams had to play each other in a playoff, a World Cup qualifying playoff, 12 days later. And El Salvador won that 3-2. Hours after the game finished, El Salvador uh, formally severed all diplomatical ties with Honduras. Uh, On the 14th of July, El Salvador was put into a blackout and began airstrikes on Honduran airports. They actually broke into all-out war until a ceasefire was made six days later. Uh, it was 11 years before the two countries signed a peace treaty in 1980. Wow. <laughs> it, was all, it was all sparked by a football match. Wow, that's mad. That is absolutely mad. And that's your number seven? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't put it at number one because it wasn't, football wasn't solely responsible for it and it's not a heated rivalry to this day. Yeah. So, no, no, no. That's fair enough. Right, my seven is Benfica Porto. Anyone like that one? No. Okay. Well, this rivalry has been around for about 100 years. Um, it started in April the 28th, 1912. Benfica winning that, 8-2. They call it O Classico. Basically, it was um, they only really played each other uh, in district finals because back in back in those days, it was all just kept in their own um, areas of the country. Um, then the league was made up 
1934, where the first division was created. Basically, similar to what I think um, Dan said with regards to Fenerbahce Galatasaray, very much um, working class versus the, p- the people that um, slot middle class. So you've got Porto that like to spend the money and work, and you've got Benfica that were more industrial. Um, some stories that went around during this rivalry is that hat emails, espionage, bribery, accusations, and witch doctors have added fuel to the fire to the rivalry. What are you doing? witch doctors tonight? I know. It just seems to just be bouncing on, bouncing with me. So we've got in the late... 1980s, Rui Agres moved from Benfica to Porto. He was actually joint top scorer in the 87-88 European Cup with with Benfica. Um, He tried to negotiate a new salary with them, but Porto offered him 11 times his salary. So obviously he went there. (laughs) In In the 80s, the rivalry got that bad that the... Portuguese national bus was split, so Benfica players would sit at the front, Porto players would sit at the back. I mean, obviously, we've we've heard a lot more of that sort of thing happening in lesser rivalries, haven't we? Especially in England recently. In the 1930s, their relationship got complicated with both teams reaching finals, like I said, from their regions, and they started insulting each other, pitch invasions and match abandonments. It's that bad that there is a scene in 2018 Champions League match between Bayern and Benfica. James Rodriguez, who was a heavy Porto fan, was being subbed off for Bayern at the time. He was on loan. And um, the fans were giving him a bit of a hard time, obviously, because he used to play for Porto. And he gestured five. That set some play upset a lot of Benfica players and the staff because they lost 5-0 against Porto back in 2010-11. They still couldn't get over that. <laughs> so all he had to do was that, and it just set everything up. I think one player right. went to, to go for him at Benfica, and a lot of the staff did. Um, and obviously the fans didn't particularly like him. They retaliated. But yeah, so that, that, that's why I put them at number um, seven for me. Because it's, it seems like it's a domestic rivalry that just seems to escalate slightly more and more each time. How's your number seven? What have you got? I'd like to Roma. Oh, okay. Number six, then, Dan. Okay, number six. I've actually got an English rivalry here. I've gone for the East London derby. West Ham versus Millwall. Green Street. <laughs> yeah. So, um... These two teams, they're roughly four miles apart. Um, It dates back to 1899, where it was originally called the Dockers Derby, where it was uh, basically people from rival firms. It was Millwall Athletic versus Thames Ironworks at the time. Over the course of uh, four decades after the war, uh, they're only in the same league three times. Despite the infrequency of their meetings, supporters still considered the other club their major rival. Uh, Football hooliganism in this country reached its heights in the 70s and 80s. And West Ham's intercity firm and the Millwall Bushwhackers, as they were called, their firms were at the forefront of all the trouble. 
1976, a Millwall supporter uh, died at New Cross Railway Station after falling out of a train during a fight with some West Ham fans. After the incident, West Ham hooligans constructed the chant, West Ham boys, we've got brains, we threw Millwall under trains. That's how, wow. <laughs> that's how much the, their uh, rivalry means to them. Uh, Millwall fans, though, they waited patiently two years for revenge the next time that the two teams met. And prior to the meeting in 1978, they distributed leaflets at the Millwall's home matches bearing the words, a West Ham fan must die to avenge him. Uh, this obviously plump- prompted a police response and a large number of uh, police attending the match at Upton Park where West Ham won 3-0. It was uh, 500 police officers that controlled the crowd that day, carrying out extensive searches of bags and strict segregation between fans outside of the ground. Uh, There were six officers injured, though, and 70 people were arrested after fans still managed to clash in the streets. There were numerous weapons seized. Despite all these checks, it was just all about about to kick off, basically. It was crazy. So it's, again, because they're not in the same division much, they don't play each other very often. But in 86, a 19-year-old West Ham fan was stabbed to death by a group of Millwall fans on the streets uh, outside a tube station in Bankman. Another incident was in 2004 on Mother's Day. Millwall beat West Ham 4-1 and violent scenes broke out again between opposing fans and it was dubbed the Mother's Day Massacre in the news the next day. Uh, One that you might remember is a League Cup match in 2009-2010 when Millwall were drawn away to West Ham and the game was marred by violence before during and after kickoff, and uh, the game had to be stopped at one point. And at that time, there wasn't really much violence in football in, in England anymore, and it was quite shocking to see a game being stopped with those scenes. Uh, There's a Millwall fan who was stabbed outside the ground and suffered a punctured lung, but thankfully he made a full recovery, and he was one of 20 people hurt in, in that incident. Uh, because of its large scale, the police had concluded that the violence was organised beforehand. So it's uh, it's a really dated rivalry that goes back a long way, and um, it's one we forget about because the two teams rarely play each other, but it's always <laughs> boiling under the surface there. It's uh, quite a weird one, really. Uh, that's a good one. Did you have that one, Dan? No, I didn't. I didn't include that one. Uh, yeah, it is. Having lived down that neck of the woods, it's, I certainly know about it. <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, it's. Less about the football, it's just more about two gangs. Absolutely. Yeah. Really. So, yeah. I think but it only really surfaces when the teams play. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. It's but Mill, Mill, like that with the like it with Charlton, they like it with Palace, you know, any excuse for a fight. Right then, my, my next one, uh, my number six is Bari versus Lecce. Tell well, you you've gone obscure tonight, mate. Very obscure. <laughs> This is called the Derby del Peglia, and the first one took place on the 8th of December, uh, 1929. That was in Serie B. They were both formed within a couple of months of each other. Uh, Bari was formed in January 1908, Lecce in March 1908. Like we said, the majority of the games were played in Serie B, but there was some in Syria as well, the first one being in the 85-86 season. 
In 2011, Lecce beat already relegated Bari 2-0. But Lecce president Pier Andrea Samaro attempted to fix the game, which he was found guilty of in 2012. So he wasn't sent to prison, but he was banned from managing or having anything to do with any footballing assets for six years. Um, Paul Rideout played for Bari in the 80s. And obviously, he's played in the Merseyside derby and in the old firm. He says that it's basically there's more passion in this derby than there is in, all, in both of those two. Some of the um, incidents that have happened, 2008, a uh, person you might have heard of, but um, Antonio Conte, I'm sure you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the time, and was attacked on a beach in Lecce. 2010, Lecce versus Bari was played behind closed doors after Lecce's Solomandi Diamantique was accosted by his own fans as he used to play play for Bari. And this happened in a training session. This year, Lecce fans were ambushed on the way to a match versus Roma. This was by Bari supporters on a motorway, a trio of Lecce buses was set fire by the Bari supporters. During this time, obviously, Lecce have been bouncing between Serie A and B. Bari have been uh, down in Serie D due to financial misdemeanours. <laughs> Make of that wish you like. Um, during that attack, hundreds of Bari ultras were actually waiting for Lecce at a motorway service station. They surrounded the buses and attacked with violent clashes on the road and on the service station. And that was this year. So that's why I put them on number six. Sounds like a pretty crazy one, that. Yeah, it gets a little bit mad, doesn't it? Little regional rivalries are probably just as bad as the bigger city ones, to be honest, in some cases. Right then, um, what's your number six? Uh, so I've gone for a very obscure one here. Uh, you probably haven't heard of it. Liverpool versus Man United. <laughs> oh, tell me more about that one, please. Never heard Is of it. Is it on your list? It's not, actually. No? Oh, OK. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've put it in because, obviously, I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, admittedly, I'm, I'm not a scout. But for me, growing up and for a lot of fans, it's it's the one fixture every season that Liverpool fans look out for, you know, when, when they're going to play Man United. And the, the, the games have become global. People look out for all over the world. And the two of the, obviously, two of the most successful clubs in England. So both have had long periods of sustained success. And obviously first Liverpool and then uh, United came along and knocked them off their effing perch. And then there's been various sort of managerial rivalries between them. Obviously, who can forget the... Uh, Rafa Fax me went ranting about Fergie and cost us the <laughs> title. And then obviously there was the racism row where Suarez and Evera said a few words to each other and the handshake that never was. Um, but both clubs are actually very similar and they're, they're both successful. They're both global. Uh, two of their best ever managers are Scottish. They're both working class cities and they, they both suffered disasters which each other taunt each other about. Obviously, Munich and Hillsborough. It's just, even though they're not city rivals, it's just 
for me personally, they are Liverpool's biggest rivals. So that's why I put them at number six. Are they bigger rivals than Everton? I would say over the last 20 years, yeah. Everton haven't been challenging for titles and cups. I actually think Liverpool care more about United than they do about Everton. Over the last 20 years, would Man United say that Liverpool are their biggest rivals? Um, well, yeah, maybe. You could argue that. But I think, I think Man United have always taken great delight in the fact that they have knocked Liverpool off their perch. I think Gary Neville especially will admit to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right then, Dan, your number five, then, please. All right, number five, I've actually gone for the old firm. Rangers versus Celtic. Number two. Same as that. Okay. So um, we've touched on it. I touched on it in the last episode a little bit with the uh, the Mo Johnson transfer. The background of this one: it Protestant fans and Catholics. There's also a bit of a sort of an Irish migrant background to it, with Ulster being associated with Rangers and Ireland to Celtic. Uh, in terms of football on the pitch, though. Rangers and Celtic have both been absolutely dominant in the Scottish leagues. So fixtures between the two are very important footballing fixtures. 30 years in a row, the title's gone to one of these two teams. Uh, the only other note I've made here is uh, quotes from Paolo Di Canio, of all people, who's been quite popular all of a season, a former Celtic player, of course. He said, there was hatred in the old firm and I soaked it up. I used it to my advantage. You could play all of the derby matches in the world, put them together, and they still wouldn't equal one millionth of the old firm. Well, I think that says it all, really, doesn't it? Did you guys have anything else on that one? The only two things I was going to say was that <laughs> Graham Sooness's name popped up again. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was actually the first Rangers manager because there was this thing that Rangers wouldn't sign a Catholic and uh, a Catholic player. So Celtic didn't really care that much. But when Graham Sooness took over, he was the first—he was the first manager to actually sign players on talent rather than their religious affiliations. Yeah, is that the Roy Johnson transfer? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say was that games are normally played early afternoons to avoid fans drinking on weekend after a 1999 title clash on a Sunday evening. The Rangers cl- uh, clinched the title. That was just mass violence. <laughs> The fans have just been tanked up all weekend, drinking. And then obviously Rangers win the title. I think it was at Celtic Stadium. Celtic I just think it all just kicked off. Celtic part, that's it. It just all just kicked off. I've, I've got that. It actually generates £120 million to the Scottish economy. Wow, yeah. That's just mad. And also, obviously, you can't forget Gaza celebration in January '98 towards Celtic fans, which he still says to this day he didn't know, didn't know anything about. Probably. <laughs> uh, he did then leave for uh, two months later, so you just don't know, do you, with that guy? <laughs> what are you saying about the money it generates? There was one other thing I did come across. There's a reason why Rangers and Celtic normally have the same shirt sponsors, because the company knows that if it sponsors one, not the other, it's going to lose a lot of money. Yeah. Ah, that's a great fact. Haven't thought about. No, didn't even think about that one. That's good. That is. So my number five is National versus Penarol. <laughs> Same here. Hopefully we can work together with this one then. <laughs> Did you have it on your list at all, Dan? No, I didn't. I didn't. 
Right, Tio. So this is the Uruguay Classico, the oldest non-UK derby this is. Right, so basically the way I've read a couple of articles on this is that it's an argument about who's been set up first. Yeah. Cause, is that um, how you got it? Yeah, Penarol started off as a cricket club, didn't they? That's it, yeah. Yeah, because of immigrants started it up. But Nacional was just native Uruguayans and they purposely just kept it at that. Matches are always played on mutual grounds. Um, <laughs> normally just on a 40,000-seater venue. And I've got a couple of main just sort of stories to tell you. 1949, uh, they call that the El Clasico de la Funga, Derby of Escape. So basically, Penarol were winning 2-0 at halftime. Nacional had two players sent off. One for throwing mud in the ref's face. <laughs> so national players and, and staff decided not to return to the pitch. So they climbed out the dressing room window at half time and escaped. <laughs> oh wow! So in two thousand, in the two thousand Uruguayan Championship final, both teams had important players out due to erupting between the teams and staff. So there were nine players out, six from Penarol, three from um, Nacional, as well as their coach being arrested and taken into custody for the amount of violence that there was. So yeah, that, that's why I put that one quite high at number five. Have you got anything more to add to that? Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's been 119 seasons, I think. I worked this out right. The pair have won 97 titles between them. Um, between 1932 and 1975, no one else won it. It was either one of those. And they've, they've never managed to do more than five successive titles between them. But the other thing, the fans like to outdo each other. In 2011, uh, Penarol fans unveiled a 309 metre flag in, in the stadium. Two years later, a 600-metre flag was unveiled. Want <laughs> <laughs> to guess who that was by? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Chris has mentioned most of the um, big games. There was an, another event with the counter in 1933 Uruguayan Cup final where the uh, national physio left his medical bag by the post and the ball hit it, bounced back into play, and Penarol scored from it. Ref assumed the, the ball had hit the post and allowed it, and two national players were sent off in protest. They did actually manage to hang on for a draw. <laughs> I, dread to ha- I dread to think what happened to the physio, though. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably hung from the post the next game. <laughs> he disappeared for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Right then, so what about your number four then, Dan? All right, I've gone for a slightly different tact with this one. I've gone for the uh, the Battle of the Americas, mm-hmm. Argentina versus Brazil. Both teams are pretty much staples uh, towards the top of the world rankings. Uh, they produce the best players in the world, and two of the greatest, Maradona and Pele, is actually quite a sore point of confrontation between the two countries on who the fans see being voted the greatest player that ever lived. And... Similarly now, they have the same argument over Messi and Neymar. 
the two talisman for the respective countries. Uh, there's just such a, a fierce competitive rivalry from a neighbouring countries, and there's a, been a few incidents that have been noteworthy over the years. Uh, the rivalry really kicked off in 1946 when there was a match between the two teams, and a Brazilian called Ademir Menezes fractured the leg of uh, an Argentine player called Bataglieri. A few months later, the South American Championship took place between the two teams, and 28 minutes in, Brazilian player fractured the leg of another Argentine player, uh, the captain Salomon, broke his tibia and his fibula, and he never recovered and never played footballer again. Players were fighting on the pitch, and police had to get involved. Uh, The public invaded the pitch, and both teams had to go back to the dressing rooms. Ever since that incident in 1946, there's been a lot of hostility between the countries, and it's uh, carried on for all those years. Uh, There's another incident in 1978 in the World Cup where Argentina and Brazil were in the same group, and Argentina ended up having to beat Peru by four clear goals to progress ahead of Brazil. And then they did it with a 6-0 victory, and straight away there were lots of accusations of foul play from Brazil, saying that the Peruvian goalkeeper was actually born in Argentina and he let them win. He didn't play the hardest. Uh, I mean, to have those accusations, it's a little bit uh, crass, to be honest, but it's just an example of the bad blood and uh, not one, not believing that Argentina can do better than you. Uh, there's another incident in the 1982 World Cup where, um, I, I didn't know this, but there was a group of death where Brazil, Argentina and Italy were all drawn in the same group. And, uh, Argentina were dumped out by Brazil. And at the end of the game, a frustrated Diego Maradona kicked a Brazilian player and got a straight red card. Uh, in the 1990 World Cup, Argentina knocked Brazil out in the, uh, the first knockout round. But... Uh, Brazil uh, were just, again, just as gracious in defeat. They uh, claimed that uh, their left-back, Branco, had his water spiked prior to the match by Argentina. Unfortunately, the two teams have never met in a World Cup final. But uh, it's just one of those fixtures where there's uh, such great talent on the pitch, there's such a long-standing rivalry, that it, it's just such a massive occasion. If, they took, if that took place on the biggest stage in a World Cup final, it would be a pretty epic encounter. Yeah. It's amazing they never have, to be honest. Yeah, that is mad. And such a big rivalry that spans so many, so long as well. I'm sure yeah. that'll come at some point. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that was your number four, wasn't it? Yeah. Mine was the Rome Derby, so on to you. I had the Intercontinental Derby, so back to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I've, uh, I've written a couple of pages for this one, so bear with me. Oh. <laughs> so, so who is this one then? So this one, it's uh, it's kind of a joint one. It's um, Hadjuk Split versus Dynamo Zagreb and uh, Red Star Belgrade versus Partizan Belgrade. I mean, those those derbies, they're, they're pretty intense. Um, they're well known for hooliganism. It's uh, still prevalent to this day. Uh, I'll, I'll first talk about the Hadjuk split Dynamo Zagreb derby, where Hadjuk and Dynamo have won 25 of 27 Croatian league titles. They are regarded as the two best teams in Croatia. But a bit more background to it. Uh, socially, uh, Croatia, it's um, heavily centralised around Zagreb. 
many people move to the capital, they study and work, and split it's uh, a bit uh, out down the coast, feels a bit ignored. And there's an attitude of we pay our taxes and Zagreb get the benefits of it. So they have a poor local economy. And uh, the club, Hajduk Split, is actually 25% owned by the supporters. So it's kind of a beacon of light for the, the fans. Now, the two clubs, they actually share a history of racism and violence. A particular incident in 2010 was where there were running battles between supporters in the, in the streets and one officer lost his eye and a fan was shot in the stomach. So quite unsavory scenes quite recently around this fixture. Nico Crenshaw, name I'm sure you remember, moved from Dynamo Zagreb to Hadrick Split in 2005. And uh, he came home to find a banner and some candles placed outside of his house with the banner reading that he was dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the transfer was not well received, to say the least. The Red Star Partisan Belgrade, uh, that's a match where it, it brings the entire country to a standstill. Uh, the stadiums are only a 12-minute walk apart. Belgrade Derby has a long association with violence, most notably in uh, 1999, when a teenage Red Star fan was killed by a rocket fired by Partisan fans. Uh, in 2013, there's an, there an incident with 104 arrests being made in clashes before, during and after the game. And in another derby that year between the fans, uh, they set fire to seats during the game. Uh, 2015, the match was delayed for 45 minutes because of crowd, crowd trouble, throwing seats and flares at riot police. When the game got underway, fans threw stun grenades onto the track around the pitch. What happens nowadays is that many supporters who would normally go to watch the team play, they actually avoid that fixture. Even though it's the biggest fixture, they won't go to the game now for the fear of violence. So that, that's the background of those two derbies. But if you go back a little further to when it was uh, Yugoslavia and it all joined up, you had a big four in the Yugoslavian league. They were the most successful teams. And there's one particular incident in 1990 between Red Star Belgrade and Dynamo Zagreb. where The match was taking place uh, just a few weeks after the vote for Croatian independence. So there was a... Croatian Democratic Union led by Franjo Tudman and they were leading forces to reorganize Yugoslavia into a confederation, overthrow Slobodan Milosevic basically and this won the vote. So what was already a fierce footballing rivalry had now become politically charged and with two of the most successful teams meeting they uh, had their ultras turn up to the match and it ended up in a mass riot with 60 people wounded, someone got stabbed, uh, shot, and tear gas being used. Uh, the Zagreb fans, their they're ultras, are known as the Bad Blue Boys, uh, still to this day. And the Red Star fans, their ultras are known as the Delige. So these two sets of ultras, they met uh, several hours before the match. There were loads of skirmishes around town. And then inside the ground, the Dynamo fans were tearing off the seats and chanting so there was a chance of slogans like Zagreb is Serbian and we'll kill Tudman, the uh, political leader. Uh, it all escalated pretty quickly and the riot broke out onto the pitch and there's a particular incident that was famed for the Croatian player Robert Prozaneki who kicked a Serbian policeman. He said he did it for the sake of uh, Croatian independence. 
and got a two-year suspended uh, prison sentence. It's, it sparked the beginning of the end for the Yugoslav Football League. The next season, the uh, Croatian teams uh, withdrew and the next year, the country disintegrated. But it was wow. the, uh, the football riot from that particular match that uh, was seen as one of the catalysts for that happening. Yeah, sorry, I went on a bit on that one. <laughs> no, 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 that was... It was a good one. Uh, interesting. I, I, I had partisan red star on my list for a little bit, and I took it off, but I didn't go into anywhere near as much history as you did. No. Right then, my number three was El Clasico. Number one for me. Number one. Right. Started on 1902. Citizens of Catalonia wanted independence from Spain. They, they saw Madrid as the capital with a seat of establishment by General Franco and his Spanish royal family. And basically, there's a civil war between the two, two parties. There's so much political correctness with this that I sort of skip through a lot of it, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Obviously, it's mainly about Catalonia and independence, isn't it, that they wanted independence. We've known that for, for a while now from Spain, and there's been murmurings of it for a while, that the motto for Barcelona, which obviously is the biggest club in Catalonia, is Mezqui and Club, and that's a symbol of Catalan independence. In recently, that Real have striker, sorry, uh, Vinicius Jr., scored a goal against Barca, which made him the youngest scorer in the fixture in the 21st century. He's actually beat Messi's record by 26 dates. Obviously, I went into great detail with regards to Figo's transfer on the last podcast, so I don't feel like I want to repeat myself. I'll give you another transfer that was quite interesting in the 50s, and that's Alfredo Di Stefano. Yep. I believe he was on my uh, he was on my top ten list of best ever players. Yes, he was. Yeah, but I didn't talk about the transfer. So, where he both very basically signed for both Real and Barca at the same time due to some sort of misunderstanding with his <laughs> owners at the time, which were called uh, by Millonarios Football Club. So it was negotiated that. He would play four seasons, two for Real and two for Barca by the Spanish Federation, which I found was pretty random to say the least. I, I, I found out about this, but uh, I don't know if either of you guys know the answer. But he didn't actually play for Barca, did he? He played for Espanyol. No. no. I, um, the article I read said that he, he'd, he'd agreed terms with Barca and then the Madrid president was friends with General Franco because they overthrown the Second Spanish Republic in the Spanish Civil War. And before you, before you knew it, a law appeared banning foreign players to be signed. That law was then tweaked, shall we say, and cut a long story short, Stefano signed for Madrid. Mm. So it's a mystery. So did he move to Madrid for two years and then Espanol for another two years then? That's what happened, yeah. Wow. That's a real kick in the teeth for Barcelona even more. Just go to your major, <laughs> another rival. <laughs> All right. Um, anything, any more to add to that? And I mean, I just really just 
bite-sized it massively because we all know sort of about the whole derby and, you know, everyone knows about the rivalry, don't they? And we, we spoke about the Louis Figo. I mean, there's other people that moved over like Brazilian Ronaldo and obviously yeah. Luis Enrique as well. Bernd Schuster, that yeah. name again. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we, you'll never leave our podcast, mate. Every podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's overtaken Stanley Matthews in most mentions of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other thing I was going to mention was there was the infamous 1943 Copa del Generalissimo, uh, where Barca beat Madrid 3 0 on the first leg, and Madrid complained about refereeing bias and the fact that all the Barcelona fans spent the whole game whistling and they didn't mm-hmm. like this roughhouse tactics. The Barcelona fans were then banned from the return leg in Madrid, and uh, Madrid thumped them eleven-one. <laughs> Very nearly made my comeback list uh, when I was in the research, but I left it off. So well, I feel the need to justify my number one pick here, and um, the reason is for me that this is the one derby that in world football today it's the one game where everyone has eyes on it. Everyone wants to know the outcome, even if they don't watch the game. They want to know what the score was. Uh, in 2017, uh, the match at the Bernabeu between the two it drew an estimated worldwide audience of 250 million people in 185 countries. That's how far-reaching this fixture is. Both clubs have got enormous fan bases, and they spend millions of pounds on marquee signings every summer almost like they're trying to one-up each other. They just want to put all-stars on the pitch, have the greatest teams, and it really is a battle of two all-star lineups. Uh, you see the best football in these games. It's just an amazing fixture. Even so much as like when you have somebody that signs for, the, for their individual clubs, whether it's Real or Barca, that they have to make sure they do the kick-ups properly, don't they? So it's yeah. almost like upon each other because I remember they were doing saying about brave freight weren't they to make sure he comes properly so he didn't embarrass Barcelona in brackets to other clubs <laughs> did Jonathan Woodgate have to do that <laughs> he scored an own goal so that's all you need to know on his debut right then and you had the same as me did you at number three yes. Yeah. So we sw- switched back on to Dan, I'm afraid. Number two. All right, number two. I've gone for River Plate and Boca Juniors. That was my number one. Did you have this one, Chris? No, mate, I didn't. I, I left that one out because I thought that one of you two were bound to mention it. Fair enough, that old trip. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I'll, I'll kick us off, Anton. Add a few bits after, or do you want to do the way around? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go on, you kick off. Oh. All right. So, um, the nation's two most successful teams in Argentina, with seventy percent of Argentine fans supporting these two teams. So, when they meet, the whole country comes to a standstill. Uh, River Plate is perceived as being the more affluent location, and they have nicknamed Los Millonarios, whereas Boca are more of the uh, the working class roots, and that's their identity. Before matches, fans will often trade verbal insults and they'll call each other things like chickens and pigs and manure collectors. Uh, River Plate fans once hired a giant inflatable 
pig to try and, and sense the Boca fans. They dressed it in a Boca shirt and they erected that before the game. And um, inciting trouble is uh, part and parcel of this fixture, perhaps embodied by Carlos Tevez, who celebrated a goal with a chicken dance and being sent off for it. <laughs> Boca legend uh, Raquel May once famously said, when I wake up, I can't put on anything that's red or white. Such was his allegiance to Boca Juniors. There's one particular incident where, for the first time in their 105-year rivalry, they uh, contested the final of the Copa Libertadores. There was so much crowd trouble after the first leg, with the uh, fears of players being attacked by rival fans, that the second leg had to be moved to another country. Real Madrid at the Bernabeu and this came after an incident where there was a bus carrying players and Boca Juniors players were attacked with broken glass and pepper spray so it was deemed unsafe to play the fixture so I had to be moved to Spain pretty pretty crazy really I remember that vividly when it was moved over to Spain I think I remember watching the match I think it was on something like BBC yeah and it's just, it's just mad having something like that put to a totally different continent. Just shows yeah. like, the, the, the epicness of the rivalry, though, doesn't it? Yeah, and like I said, it, it's the match where the country comes to a standstill. It's the, it's the South American Champions League final, effectively. Everyone in there has got eyes on it. And then it's the match has moved to Spain. <laughs> yeah. Extreme. I read that if, if you book a travel package, like a tourism travel package to the city, then you actually get a ticket to the Derby if it's... That weekend, it's like a, it's like a spectacle. Yeah, it's an experience. What's your number one, Dan? It was El Clasico. El Clasico, and mine was Galatasaray um, Fenerbahce, which was done very early on in this segment. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's our top ten. I think it was particularly varied. Yeah. Yeah. Some new things that I, I, I didn't know about, like uh, St. Pauli, Rostock. Thanks for your detailed explanation with regards to Yugoslavia. And, um, your book will be following soon, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, ghost written. <laughs> no, some really interesting rivalries and easily probably our toughest top 10 I think we've done in our whole of our top 10s that we've done, I think. I think it's yeah. lovely that we, that we get fan requests, but don't make them that hard next time, please. <laughs> and I just Twitter polls. If you want to just do it, do it on like flops or something like that. It might be a little bit more easier. It's not a back corner back. Right underneath Armani's goal and he manages to get it away. And this is going to be a walk in here. Here it goes, the third one. It is. The final segment we've got now is the quiz to finish up our show. Three. So I think as it stands, am I right in saying that Dan's leading with five and with three? No, I've got one. Yes, that's right. That's right. So at least it's a bit of a top of the table clash 
this time around as I'm calling the shots. <laughs> 15 questions on UEFA um, Cup and Champions League and there's a couple of other normal ones involved as well. Um, but as obviously it's a, we've been speaking in a bit of depth with regards to those two competitions, I thought we might as well do some questions about them as well. Very get fitting. You, get, you think, get yourselves thinking a little bit. So, fingers on buzzers. Are you both ready? Yeah. Okay, so, question number one. Who was the first million-pound player? Trevor Francis. Correct. 1-0 down. Do you know where it was from? The, the clubs. No extra points, but just... Was mm. it Burnham Forest? Oh, someone's on four tonight. Watch out. <laughs> Do you want to yeah, just give him, give him the quiz now and I'll go for bed? <laughs> hey, you're not going away that easily, mate. I got humbled last time, so... <laughs> okay, so next one, number two. Who won the Champions League in 2004? Porto. And that is correct. Well done, mate. One all. Can you remember who they beat in the final? Uh, Monaco. Well done. Cool. This is a battle. <laughs> this is a battle. Okay. So, next one. Which club finished runners up in the Champions League in 2002? Valencia? All right. No. I'll give you a little bit of a clue. This was famously a club that were in line to win their domestic cup and league. And obviously, they lost all three of them. Leverkusen? Correct. Well done. Mr. Michael. I, I didn't, yeah, I couldn't even remember that, to be honest. Well done. So, two, one down. So, okay. Now, this one's a bit more of a difficult one. Okay. So, it's a bit about how many players you can guess and then whether you want to go up. You know the thing that I'm really rubbish at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so how many players can you name in Ajax 1995 Champions League starting lineup? I'll go to Ant first out of the 11. God. Uh, Obviously, don't be in Three? Three. Can you, do you think you can beat three? I'll try four. Are you going to do it, Chris, or are you going to go for it? <laughs> no, I'll let Dan have it. Okay, four. Go for it, Dan. Vandersar. That's one. Kanu. No. Sorry, Dan. Can you name one to nick the point? Uh, Frank De Boer. We say Frank de Boer. That is correct. Well done, Ant. To all. The, the lineup would have been this, which is pretty amazing, really. Um, like you said, Van der Sar, Frank de Boer, Daily Blind. Danny Blind. Danny Blind. Sorry, Daily Blind is the son, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, Michael Reisiger, Frank Reichard, Edgar Davids, Seardorf. Yari Littmanen, Mark Overmars, 
Fanidi George or Ronald DeBow? I thought one of you might say Cliver, but he came on as a sub to score the winning goal in that game. It's quite easy when you think about it. <laughs> I was going to give you a clue to say the Dutch national team. Yeah. I thought. <laughs> so, two all. Doing well, guys. Okay, so... Uh, which one of these four players started the Champions League final for Man United in 99? So that is Teddy Sheringham, Paul Scholes, Jesper Blomqvist, or Roy Keane? Roy Keane? Uh, no. You say which one started? He started, yeah. Keane was suspended, I think. Mm. Skulls. No. So you got Sheringham or Blomquist? Sheringham. No. <laughs> I knew I should have Blomquist. Yeah, he's only one. I think um, Sheringham and Skulls, I think, were on the bench when Blomquist started. Must have been Skulls must have just come off injury, so it's still to all guys. Okay. So, I've got here, there have been 23 winners of the Champions League. There's been 10 clubs that have won it once. How many can you name? And I'll start with Dan to put in his offer first. So, this is since 1956. It's not going to, the date's not going to be like things. Four, okay. That's a good style. Only won it once. Yeah, so single winners, yeah. There's four. Do you think you can get five, Anne? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with five. Can you push for six, Dan, do you think? I'll go on, I'll try six. Can you reach seven, and Can you go seven? That's 70% of them all. It's two yeah, go or on. Yeah, go on. You go seven. Can yeah. you go eighty percent of them or what? You can go eight, Dan. <laughs> um, I don't think I can. Okay, so Anne, you're seven, please, then. Chelsea. Yeah. Aston Villa. Well done. That's a good one. On two. Uh, oh, God. Mine's on blank now. Um, Marseille? Yeah. Three. Auto? Chip Auto. No. Sorry, mate. They've done it twice, yeah. They're in the 50s as well, I'm afraid. Yeah. Can you answer one to nick the point, Mr. Smith? Red Star Belgrade? Yeah, well done. That was a good try, Anne. All of them are. I'll give you them. Celtic. Celtic's one of them, isn't it? Yeah, no, I just thought Celtic. Wynard. Malmo? No. Villa, Hamburg, 
Style Bucharest, PSV, Red Star Belgrade, and like you said, Marseille, Dortmund, and Chelsea. That was really lucky there. You went big. I couldn't believe you got Villa. I'll be honest with you, that's impressive. <laughs> that's one of the first ones that came to my mind. Yeah, I thought of Villa. That was a good question. So, so that's 3-2 uh, then to Dan at the moment. Right then, fingers on buzzers. Who is the first person to win the Champions League three times with three different teams? Edgar Davids? Nope. Shevchenko? No. Nationality-wise, we're close with Davids. And the Saar? Nope. I'll give you one of the clubs that this guy's won out with. We'll say Milan. Seidorf? Correct. Boom. So he's won it with Milan, Ajax and Real Madrid. Well done, Right, so this one's going to be, I think, a speed one. Which Spanish team is the most successful in winning the UEFA Cup slash Europa League? Sevilla. Bill. Well done. Well done, Dan. Well done, Dan. 4-3. What was the scoreline of last year's Europa League final between Chelsea and Arsenal? 4-1. To who? Chelsea. Chelsea. Yeah, well done, Dan. Five, three. Come on, Dan. Right, question 10. Right, then. So that is... So I'm going to give you... It's one of our original ones where I give you the clubs. You've got to guess who it is. So it's Cannes, Bordeaux, Juventus, Real Madrid. What's the Dan? You said Zidane, that's correct. Oh, well done. Okay. Five four. Right then. Similar thing, exactly the same. So it is Cusario, PSV, Barcelona, Inter, Ronaldo. Pardon? Ronaldo. Correct. Six four. One of the clubs I've said for the next one, Bahia, Seville, Barcelona, Juventus, PSG, Sao Paulo. Can you read them again, please? Yeah, so it's Bahia, Seville, Barcelona, Juventus, PSG, and Sao Paulo. I think probably your, bet, your, your best bet is probably we're thinking about Barcelona. Probably Seville to Barcelona is the best connection. He was a defender. Danny Alves? Correct. 7-4. Right then, here's another one. Okay, it's a long list. Okay. So bear with me. 
Dorwich Harriet, IFK Hasselholm, QPR, Portsmouth, Villa. Ouch. Yes. Well done. <laughs> well done. Got me a stride then. You mean, you mean Dulwich Hamlets by any chance? <laughs> I'll take a point off of being copy. <laughs> Seven five. Okay, now. In the Europa League final in 2016, who scored the opening goal for Liverpool in their 3 1 to Seville? Sturridge. Come back, Tom. Well done. <laughs> so this could be split points if you get this right. Oh, God. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Right then. We did the Champions League final question. I've done a similar one. There's nine correct answers, but it's about the Europa League and it's about English finalists. So there's nine English finalists in the Europa League. So how many can you guess of them? And we'll start with, I think it's Ants go first. When you say Europa League, do you mean UEFA Cup as well? Both, sorry. Europa League and UEFA Cup. How many did you say there were? Nine. Nine English, yeah. I'll go five. Can you get sixty? I'll go six. Go six, okay. Seven foot seven to level, or are you gonna risk it? Yeah, I'll go seven. He's going seven, he's going big. Can you go eight, Ben? Yeah, I'll go eight. Oh, okay. Oh, God. Okay, go for it, Dad. Does that not want to go for nine? No, <laughs> I'm going to go eight. Can you go all out? I thought, I thought you would go all out. 100% all nine. I was only bluffing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll try and name. Try and name them. Um, Arsenal. Like Arsenal was one, yeah. Chelsea. That's two. Liverpool. That's three. Uh, Tottenham. That's four. Ipswich. That's five. Middlesbrough. That's six. Man United? About seven. One more. And waiting in the wings to steal, to level it up. I've got one down, hasn't got. Yeah, I think I think we've we've even maybe discussed. You can't give me hints, Chris. Maybe yeah, um, giving him hints. Was it Fulham? He said Fulham. That's eight. Well done. Can you get the ninth? Was it Aston Villa? No. Can you get the ninth hand? Just to be 
Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Dan. You won that one. Wow. Right, that was a clash of the titans. That was seriously eight six. Well done, guys. You, to be honest, you the won. only one that in the hind that I actually forgot was Fulham. I've got really? that in the final. Yeah. Even though we talked about the comeback. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought with you talking about it. I thought you must already. No, I, I knew they did the comeback in the quarterfinal, but I couldn't remember whether they got to the, just the semis yeah. or the final. No, they got they got to the final, got battered, didn't they, by Seville? Yeah. No, well done there, Dan. You extended your lead now, so it's six three one. It's quite a big Are gap. Not beaten, Dan, yeah. <laughs> I think someone must have been the earlier ones. <laughs> I lost the very first one. <laughs> no, well done. Um, so that's more or less it. Repeat the socials, and that is uh, Twitter VAR at the bar one, um, Facebook VAR at the bar. Or if you want to email us with any list whatsoever or any requests, it's VAR at the bar 2020 at gmail.com. Obviously, all our pods are available on Spotify and iTunes as well. So please subscribe if you've got a minute and listen to all our other episodes. I've got a question, Chris. Go for it. I've got a question. Are we doing a fantasy football league this year? Are we? Of course. We can talk about that in the next episode. (laughs) All right. Cool. After last year, I'm still licking my wounds off last year's uh, narrow loss. Thank you very much. Who did did we lose to? It was you, wasn't it, Dan? I think I was about 150 points behind you two when the lockdown happened. Somebody, okay, just just kick us even more <laughs> when we're down. You and your double points. Shouldn't be allowed, should it? Come second in the end, Chris. Was that me? I genuinely can't remember. No, that, was, that was you. I think oh, I was just uh, it was just a nightmare last week for me. Yeah. Anyway, leave it that. See, that's me, Chris, saying goodbye. Who I'm with. See you later. That's a bye from Dan. Podcast Network. You will fail. So what? Everybody does. But your gym, your watch, your yoga pants, they pretend you won't. So when you miss a day, eat the pancakes. Give up on a workout? You failed? Seriously, what the hell? We're Body. We've been a part of that too, but not anymore. At Body, we're rejecting perfection and embracing reality. Not in a Pizza Monday kind of way, in a loving your whole life kind of way. In a, this workout is fun and it's okay if I take a week off kind of way. In an, I'm eating healthy and it's okay if I indulge kind of way. In a, I like myself no matter what kind of way. Yeah, 
You will fail. We all will. But we're not going to let that be the end. You see that? We're already making progress. So let's keep going. We are Body. Start your free trial at body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com.